If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. And I'm your new co-host, Amanda Justice, representing all the potential therapy clients out there. And today we welcome to the show... Ariel Sokol Ward, licensed clinical social worker, who will be speaking about her practice in an area of specialty, grief, loss, and trauma. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hello. So uh, to get us started, what are your credentials and experience? So um, I am a uh, licensed clinical social worker. Um, I am also a uh, complex uh, clinical trauma practitioner, um, and sometimes seen as complex, um, complex trauma practitioner. Um, and I, I love trauma and, and grief and it's you know, my cup of tea, which is, you know, strange to say, but I really do love it. Um, and I uh, have a, a background in working with, you know, a, a lot of different populations. Um, my, my first job in the social work field was with the um, mentally ill unhoused population. Um, I have experience working with the domestic violent um, offender and uh, victim population. I most recently before my, my practice that I'm currently doing, um, I was working in an eating disorder treatment facility um, at the IOP level of care and the THP level of care. Um, and I really love that. Um, but since COVID really started, I, I needed a, a shift. Um, so I joined a group practice, um, Moonstone Counseling Center. Um, and uh, since August, Yes, 2020, I uh, have started my own private practice as well. Um, thank you. Um, 
and I, I specialize in grief and trauma. Um, I am EMDR trained and, um, and yeah, it really is what I, what I love to do. I have a lot of uh, passion for, for what I do, a lot of gratitude for it. What is the name of your practice? Uh, you know, simple to the point. It's just my name. Um, Ariel um, LCSW PLLC. So it's, uh, you know, you know, you know it when you see it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? And if not, why not? I do accept insurance. Um, I, I take insurance through um, other platforms. Um, so I am currently uh, taking insurance through Headway, um, which I am with uh, Oscar, Aetna, United, and Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, I am not currently accepting clients for Blue Cross Blue Shield um, anymore. Um, I have quite a few clients that, that take Blue Cross Blue Shield, but uh, currently not accepting anymore um, due to the challenges <laughs> with the insurance company. Um, yes. So, um, but I, I, I want to be, you know, accessible to, to people. Um, and, and I have, you know, a certain number of slots for insurance um, seeking or insurance using clients and then um, for private pay as well. Okay, cool. Um, do you have a sliding scale or reduced fee that you can offer clients? I do not um, because I take insurance. I, I don't. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who do and don't, so gotta ask. <laughs> um, it's a it's a, a point of contention among many people. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? Uh, I don't work weekends. Um, generally the, the last client I see is at five. Um, so nothing under that every now and again, I'll see a client on, you know, a Sunday or, um, or a Saturday. Um, but that usually would, would just be for, you know, a particular situation. Gotcha. Okay. Um, are you currently seeing clients via telehealth in person or a combo of both? I am just telehealth right now. And I, I can imagine myself at, at some point, maybe, maybe later on this year, you know, being in an office, um, once or twice a week, but I really do enjoy being, you know, virtual. And what's kind of strange is that I've actually never met any of my clients in person. Yeah, it's so weird. I, you know, like there's there's people I've worked with for over a year now, and I've never met in person. And yeah, it's also it's also interesting to me that there are people who have been trained to as therapists who have never met with people in person. You know, I think yeah. that's so interesting. Um, okay, so is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Uh, very much my first career. I. Um... I feel very grateful that I, I found a first career that I, I love so much. Um, that being said, um, as many therapists know, um, social workers and LPCs, maybe more so social, social workers, 
Um, but it, it's a journey to get here. Um, you usually do a lot of stuff you don't really love to do. You definitely don't get paid enough. Um, maybe doing some things that you would have never done before, but you just needed the, the hours, the clinical hours. Um, so as I said, yeah, work with many populations that I wouldn't, uh, choose to work with again. Um, but it got me to, to where I am, which is, you know, therapy. Yeah. 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 What was it that drew you to being a therapist and started you down that path? So, uh, I remember having a very, a very memorable conversation with a professor who, uh, was also, I want to say for at least one semester, my, um, advisor, um, in college. And I, I went to Towson university. I got my degree in family studies, which basically means that you're going to grad school and, uh, you're, you know, a lot of people either go from that program, you know, go to get a social work degree or a counseling degree. Um, not everyone, but most people. And, um, at the time I was looking at a counseling program through, uh, Johns Hopkins, and I was looking at a social work program through university of Maryland. Um, at the time, the university of Maryland was a, uh, a better program. And uh, I say at the time, cause I, I haven't checked numbers recently. Um, but in this conversation I had with my professor, she was a social worker. Um, and she said, you know, what do you want to do? Or, you know, at the, at the end of this, what do you want to do? And I, I think I said therapy because I, that has always been kind of on my, on my mind. Um, I was like, but I mean, I don't know, it could be something else. I don't know yet. And she's like, well, you might have more opportunity with social work. You can, you can be a therapist as a social worker, but you can also do this and you can also do that, you know, and maybe in ways that a, a counseling degree wouldn't, um, be beneficial in or, or, or help you in. Um, I do think that has changed over the years. I think it's more kind of equalized now. And every, you know, if you can be a social worker and do X, then you could do the same thing with an LPC. Um, but at the time, maybe it was different. So I answered except for maybe except for maybe medical social work. That's true. That is true. Yeah, I, I and I also LPCs that. still can't accept Medicare either. So. There's that too. I did not know that. Only LCSWs and psychologists. Yeah. They, they've, it's a, an age old thing and they have not changed it. Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that. Okay. Okay. Proving me wrong here. Okay. So. <laughs> I always, whenever anybody comes to me and they're like, Hey, I'm thinking about being a therapist. I always push them in the LC direction because mm. I think that I, I still think there's a lot more opportunity and like, I, I wish I had done that, but I, I do, you know, I'm an LPC, but I, I feel like I'm a social worker at heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and I, I think another reason why I chose social work too, was because at the time I was really, what I thought I wanted to do was, was work with uh, the domestic violence population. Um, and maybe go into like policy work around that. Cause I, I was very much moved by, by that. Um, at the end of the day, I chose a, a clinical track, um, for grad school. Um, the macro track, the policy track wasn't really my thing. Um, 
but it definitely, it, it, it led me to a place that I found like more of myself in. Um, I, I definitely, I feel very drawn to, to clinical work. Um, and yeah, so that, that kind of created that, that road for me. Um, I started doing trauma work, I would say pretty early on. I mean, my first, my first opportunity, like clinical opportunity was in college. Um, and I led a, um, a parenting class, um, a, a court mandated parenting class, which was challenging, which was eye-opening, which was, I mean, clinically life-changing in, in many ways, because this was uh, in inner city Baltimore. Um, I was the youngest person in the room. I was the only white person in the room. I was the only person without children. And I had this authority and I had this, like, there's a, a power differential and it would, and, and also, you know, this baby, not even baby social worker, I wasn't a social worker, a baby family studies student. Um, and just really like kind of setting a tone of, of important things that I want in my practice as a, as a clinician, whether I'm doing therapy or whether I'm doing more community work or whether I'm doing advocacy work, like my first experience of that, like shaped it. in I think more ways than, than I have probably given it credit to. Um, but where I am with grief now being a grief and trauma therapist really came from my, my own experiences of grief and trauma. Um, and having this, uh, the separation of like personal stuff and professional stuff, like being these kind of arbitrary arbitrary boxes like they because they blend so so often um and that has really been the truth for for my path and, and where i'm at yeah yeah totally um i think it's you know i think a lot of what makes a therapist a good therapist is having their own variety and experiences like life of life experiences mm-hmm. and like you know, going through it themselves. Yeah. And, um, a conversation I recently had, we were talking about transference and counter-transference and, you know, how that plays a part in the therapeutic alliance and, and therapeutic space. And that at least when I was in grad school and kind of every place thereafter, it was like, if you're experiencing counter-transference, like something's wrong, this is a problem. You need to fix it. Like you need to get supervision. You need to get consultation. Um, like, a, it's, it was a, it was a red flag when actually it's I think transference and counter-transference. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a tool and it's, it can be a really, really powerful tool. And I think, because, I mean, if I'm being honest, I probably have counter-transference every single therapy session with every single client because one, I'm a relational therapist. Um, it's something that's foundationally, I'm a relational therapist. Um, and most clients know why I do this work. They know how I got to this work from, from 
the own, you know, my own loss um, of my partner. And it makes the rapport stronger. It makes the trust stronger because they know that not only do I come from, you know, a framework of having the knowledge or having um, the degree or the license or, you know, doing the trainings, but I have a life experience of it. I know what it is like to be in a place that feels like the darkest place of your life with no light in sight. And do I always share the details of that? Not always, but when I have a client that is struggling and they know that I have experienced something similar, it's a totally different dynamic that is like within the therapy session that just wouldn't be there without, without transference and counter-transference and, and that relational standpoint. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. We are on the same page. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little more about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, pets, et cetera? Um, well, unfortunately I have no pets. I keep trying to, uh, like short-term foster, but you know, people just keep getting, it keeps falling through, you know, I don't know. They keep getting people before me snatching up these dogs. So, um, unfortunately no pets, but I do love dogs. Um, I, I am, I am having a challenge, but I can't help it. Um, watching this, this reboot of sex in the city. And it is, uh, I feel like it's really problematic and just trying so hard and very cringy, but I can't not watch it because I'm a huge sex and city fan. So I will keep watching it. I am rewatching Ted Lasso because it's the most wholesome show I've ever watched in my life. Um, I recommend everyone to watch it. It talks about mental health. It talks about, it's like, it's just, it's just so good. It's so good. I have a very close relationship with my siblings. Um, I have two brothers and two sisters. We are constantly talking to each other on our WhatsApp group. Um, I see one of my sisters usually a couple times a year. We try to, you know, always, we try to like come home at the same time, at least a few of us to see each other. Um, So I feel very grateful to have that in my life. I am pretty obsessed with the EMDR. Um, I, in my spare time, in my non-clinical time, I like read up on EMDR and like watch videos and I just think it's amazing. Um, (laughs) And I won't shut up about it. So I won't go too much into it right now because it'll just never get me to stop talking. Um, what else? I feel like it's been, I mean, I feel like that's almost a challenging question because the last couple of years, it has been so different, obviously, but I have noticed myself finding it challenging to like go back into the world, especially like, especially right now when it's like, it's kind of open, but should it be open? And like, people aren't wearing a mask, but everyone's still getting sick. So I think you do need to wear a mask. And it's just like, like, there's so much unknown. Um, so I, I've noticed myself finding it 
difficult to kind of re-enter in a way that I normally would be engaged in. Um, so I'm, I'm not doing as much. Um, but I do, I live close to the lake. So I, I do like walking around the lake a lot. Um, I'm trying to get that vitamin D. So. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Can you describe your ideal client for me? So I think my, my ideal client would be someone that, uh, that has a, a willingness to be present in therapy. Um, and I say that because what I often see, which is understandable, um, is that, you know, someone can come to therapy, they can say, okay, I want to start therapy. Um, and then when I'm like, all right, what, what, what are we talking about today? They're like, I don't know. I'm like, well, I don't know. It's not me. And, uh, <laughs> someone that wants to at least be curious about like, okay, how, how could I potentially maybe look some hard stuff in the face, even if I'm not there and willing to do it right now, but willing to like engage in the space. Part of my spiel when I, when I have a consultation with a client um, is like, I, I call myself a validating challenger and I will, I'm a validation queen validate you to the moon and back, but I'm going to call you on your shit. And that's not everyone's, that's not everyone's style. I'm an Enneagram eight. Another thing about me, which, um, is the challenger. And I just, I can't turn it off. If I'm, if I'm in therapy, I still can't turn it off. So I'm going to continue to challenge you. Um, and from, I mean, from verbal reports of my clients, like that is, that's how, that's how they know me. They know I'm going to do that. And that's why rapport continues to build because like, it's, it's something that they can expect um, because it's kind of like innately who I am. Um, so it's not something I need to remember to do, <laughs> but also it's, I think that can be a, such an opportunity for growth when there's, when I can challenge someone and they know that it's coming from, you know, a caring place, a loving place, um, because we have that rapport. So someone that, that is open to being challenged and being called on their shit. I really, I really love working with people that are experiencing grief and loss. Um, and that they've, and that values, you know, a space that's theirs each week and that they're ready to show up for. And maybe that means just showing up for the appointment, but that this is their space and, and, a lot of people don't have that space. Um, even if they have a lot of support in their lives, they, this is a very particular kind of space. So sees, sees the value in that. And then, and, and people that have trauma histories that, you know, might be open to new interventions. Um, if they've been in therapy before, you know, such as EMDR, um, if they haven't tried that. So, um, open, willing, curious. I okay. Client. Now, I know you've talked about EMDR. Uh, in addition to that, what modalities do you draw upon and what sorts of evidence do you rely on to support your treatment of choice? And how do you stay up to date on new information or approaches? So, um, yeah, so I love, I, I love EMDR. Um, I do, I have, you know, 
readings on it. I have signed up for, you know, continuing education things on it. Um, I, you know, refer to the literature, whether that be, you know, books, articles, videos um, from like the leaders of the practice. I read peer-reviewed research and I, I, I really try to, I really try to know myself and like know how much I, I can take on and, and how much um, will fit into my brain. <laughs> well, because I also use like other models and it just can't, I don't, I don't want it to be all about EMDR. So some of those other models, like um, the relational model. So like have the relationship being kind of the determining factor of successful therapy, um, which a lot of research points to where, you know, I could be the best trauma therapist in Texas, but if I don't have a good relationship with my client, then it doesn't matter. Also like this model, um, like helping clients become um, aware of how they relate to other people um, and the, the importance of the relationship and like starting with the therapeutic model um, and therapeutic relationship, modeling that open communication and listening and empathy and active listening, you know, that being a really, a really important kind of space to come from um, in therapy. Uh, I do a lot of DBT. Um, I'm not formally trained, um, but I have a lot of experience in it. And I, I really love DBT because it's all skill-based. So if we can add to, if we can add to like their toolbox that they already have, they already have a toolbox ready, but we can add these skills for maybe specific times and just general times. It really makes all the difference, especially when we're talking about grief and trauma, because we want to be able to regulate um, and not leave someone like an open wound at the end of session. Yeah. And, and have them be able to contain themselves and, and their world outside of, of session. And then uh, like sensory motor, somatic experience. Um, I, I lean on that a bit, um, kind of like dipping my toe in right now, mostly just with, like different exercises and techniques. Um, like it sometimes at the end of sessions, end of difficult sessions, or when we need to regulate, like asking them to, to notice certain things. And that being a good way to, to contain. Okay. So one universal experience that we all have at some point, if not several points in our lives, is the experience of grief and loss. This could be grief surrounding the loss of a loved one or even the loss of the ability to physically do something we used to be able to do. Grief and loss comes in many forms. There is a sense of connectedness in this experience even though we all experience it differently. Now, there have been many stages of grief models proposed, and I'm just curious what your thoughts on those are. So I think they all have, I mean, a lot of, I mean, they all have benefits. I think now what a, a common acceptance of this is that uh, it's not, they're not necessarily stages um, and they're more just, you know, sometimes things that happen in grief. When we think of stages, I think it's stages kind of feels like linear and we know it's not. So again, kind of like a, a general acceptance that I think people have, we've all come to this conclusion. So I think that, you know, when we talk about 
the general stages of grief that that most people know it's not something that that isn't relevant because I, I know it has gotten a lot of sometimes like bad publicity <laughs> um but just taking it uh like with a with a grain of salt you know like you uh you might stay in one stage for a day you might stay in another for a year you might go back to some you might never reach some um and that these are kind of like landmarks um but not necessarily like total stops in your grief journey there's a there's another model um about rituals by uh kenneth daca i think that's how you pronounce his last name where it talks about like these uh, four rituals um, that people can can connect with their loved one after they die. Um, so there's uh, rituals of transition, rituals of affirmation, rituals of continuity, uh, and then uh, rituals of uh, intensification. And the and you know similar, it it's not something that happens linear linearly. It's not something that uh, we we absolutely need to do. Um, but it's a it's a model that can be used um, and and talked about like in grief therapy um, and and would be helpful to to someone who's grieving to because rituals in so many cultures you know is a is a big part of the bereavement process um, and bereavement experience. So kind of bringing that together, you know, in a non-cultural way, but in a, in a universal way, while still honoring the culture, it can be, you know, super helpful. Like another, another practice that, that we can share with clients or, or uh, like models of grief um, talks about four stages of mourning um, so, um, and it, which is a bit similar to like the, the stages of grief, um, but accepting like the reality of the loss, working through the pain that we feel in grief, adjusting to life without that person anymore in our lives, and then maintaining a, a connection while still going on to live our life. And again, not something that generally happens linearly. We can feel like we are we have a, a good relationship with this um, now deceased person and, you know, we're back to work, we're living our life. And then all of a sudden, like we get a trigger and, oh my God, I can't believe this person is out of my life and we can't really accept the loss all over again. So there's a lot of, a lot of models to, to go from. And I think generally it's, it's helpful just like in, in maybe all types of <laughs> therapy, uh, taking more of an integrative approach rather than just this one particular thing. As Noah pointed out, grief is something that everybody will experience in their life at some point. Uh, so why do you think it's the case that people who are not currently experiencing grief tend to receive the grieving with a great deal of discomfort? So for example, I'm not a person who cries and I especially don't cry in public, but I recently experienced a loss and in my grief, I just can't help but cry often and quite publicly at times I cry at work now. It's just a thing. <laughs> uh, people often respond to it almost as if I'm taking my clothes off, even though I find most people are incredibly outwardly empathetic over the fact that I'm experiencing grief as long as they don't have to hold space for the actual emotions that come with it. 
Uh, why do you think this is the case? So this is like the, uh, what I think a lot of people talk about even outside the grief realm of like, when someone asks how you are, we don't actually really want to know. We just want the, I'm good, you, or yeah. I'm fine. Because if we like really tell the person how we are, if, if we, we share this amazing day that we're having, then maybe, you know, we're showing off. If we share that we're grieving and it's been a horrible day, then ugh, kind of a bummer. And people don't know how to react to that. People, people don't know. They don't know how, how to hold that because they were probably expecting the, Oh, good. You. Yeah. So, um, and it's, it's a challenging balance because, you know, we want to be able to live that like authentically grieving self life and feel free to do that, feel safe to do that. And also acknowledging in general, like others boundaries or, or acknowledging how much they can hold um, at particular times because of maybe what they're going through. So, you know, if someone is outwardly grieving, it, it creates this space of, um, of discomfort because it's never talked about because mm -hmm. people quite literally don't know what to do because this is never something we learned in school. This is never something that's talked about in professional, um, spaces. It's not something it's, it's like, it's a stigmatized thing. We've deemed crying as an issue and a problem. And it's like, you don't share that with other people when it's a very natural and important and healthy thing to do. So, and this doesn't even have to be with, with crying. Um, it can just be sharing like, Oh, I'm having such a hard day. I, I, I don't know what to, I have this issue. I don't know what to do about it. It's like, Ugh, sounds like, uh, someone else's problem or like, Oh, sounds like you need some therapy, like, which <laughs> yeah. could be true, but it's always like push it aside. It's like, Oh, well, I, I don't know what to do with that. So let me just say something, um, <laughs> good hearted, but cliche. So, you know, God never gives you anything more than you can handle <laughs> or, uh, everything happens for a reason. They're in a better place. They're in a better place, <laughs> which really means, I don't know why this happened mm. or, uh, I don't know where they are, but I wish I was there. Like, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's not real. It's not real. And People have very little tolerance for discomfort to begin with, let alone others' discomfort mm. when we weren't uh, asking for it. But that's, that's life. And, and unfortunately, this creates a, a systematic spiral of, of doom where like, we're, we can't get out of this. It just, it just continues to be a stigmatized issue. It continues to be something that people don't understand or people don't want to deal with. And we just push it off to people like, uh, like, uh, sounds like you should talk to your therapist about that. Or it, it you know, I just take a little bath when you get home. Yeah. 
because I don't want to talk to you about this. I don't want to listen because maybe you don't need to have the right thing to say. You just need to be. Yeah. But people don't know that because it's not talked about. Yeah. So another curious question, what are some aspects of grief in which you see a lot of commonalities in people's experiences of grief, as well as some places in which people may tend to diverge on this? So generally, a, uh, a very common experience is experiencing guilt, loneliness, people will bargain in different ways, which is one of the identified stages of grief. You know, we don't often feel understood. Self-destruction is very common. Um, anger, acknowledging that there are many unknowns. And, you know, what can happen here is that when we have one unknown, um, we can start to be more aware of, of all the other things that are unknown that maybe we were somewhat tolerating or okay with, or maybe we didn't, it wasn't really in our awareness, but all of a sudden now we're in a spiral of overwhelm because this one very big unknown happened and we can't deal with the, the minor things in our life or the tolerance to, to discomfort, to inconveniences is, is uh, significantly decreased. So when we like have these commonalities, it's kind of interesting because especially, especially with things like guilt or loneliness um, or not feeling understood, these things can be very isolating. Um, at the same time, we don't necessarily want to be understood. We think we do. We're very sad that we're not. And when given the opportunity, we, um, we want to think that our, our grief is, is special. Our grief um, is bigger. Our grief, you know, like, yes, I lost my dog and this person lost their dog, but, but my dog, I've had, I've had them for so much longer. So it's not the same. And the reality is that you're right. It isn't the same because no grief is the same, no matter what it is. However, it becomes like a, a battle, like a, like a pissing contest kind of, and like, and it's, it's like a weird paradox that happens in grief. And so I think we often will see with certain personalities. I think the language around this used to be in men, men experience grief in this way, women experience grief in that way, gender stereotyping and, you know, going with only two genders. I don't find that to be very helpful. So <laughs> I think with certain personalities, um, so thinking back to like DBT, for example, people that have more of that reason brain, rather than the emotional brain, we tend to see people maybe uh, throwing themselves into work or things that they can control or, or trying to avoid or trying to be strong because we might be told that like, well, I mean, crying, that, that's not productive at all. So why would I cry? It's not going to bring them back. So why would I cry? And uh, like very, very reason oriented and order oriented. And with other people that maybe have more of that emotion brain and are more in touch with feelings and maybe are more okay with those like, 
exhibits of emotion, whatever that may be, we might see those people be the first ones to line up for therapy, maybe express their emotions in, in different ways um, through like, like creative ways, whether it's through art, whether it's through writing, you know, speak to others on it um, and not, not having that fear of judgment so much. And it doesn't mean the fear of judgment isn't there um, for, for anyone, but uh, like, I think it depends really on, I mean, really so much, but like, like the type of personality you have. Um, but again, the type of job, like if, if you're working in a, in a mental health treatment center, people might be more understanding of grief and uh, hard days than if you're working at a, you know, a law firm because of just the, the and two very different environments, feeling very different in those environments. Um, and what is accepted there, um, and what is accepted in your life and, you know, in your family and your culture. And I mean, there's, there's many different ways that this can, um, the qualities of, of grief can show up or not show up, um, for people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What has been your own personal experiences with grief? And is there any relationship between your own experiences to your passion in, in working with people on this? Yes. Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, what really got me into to grief work and, 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 and the trauma work that I do is going through my own. Um, so in 2015, uh, my partner, Drew, passed away on uh, March 6th. And he overdosed on heroin and this created, I mean, it created a very difficult space um, and kind of a very particular space because I was in, when this happened, I was in grad school to become a social worker, to become a therapist. And, and I think that there's this like misconception, uh, <laughs> which I kind of find funny that like therapists, because we either show through modeling or psychoeducation or can hold space. Like we see that maybe there's some assumptions that like we do that for ourselves when we're not the therapist in the therapist role and, uh, untrue, you know, (laughs) I know all the DBT skills by heart. I, I, I could name all of them. Do I do them? No, because throwing a damn fit feels so much better, you know? (laughs) And like, so sometimes I choose to do that. So like going through this time and, and again, not even, I didn't, I, there, I don't think there were any classes. Actually, that's probably not true. Um, There probably was a class. I just didn't take it but I wasn't learning about grief. I wasn't learning about bereavement. I wasn't learning about, you know, how to hold that space for a client, let alone how to go through it myself. Again, it's not taught. And I just, I constantly imagine like, what if DBT skills were taught in elementary school? Or what if like grief was just a normal topic of conversation, like how different human beings would be. Um, but that's another spiel. So, I think that about I think that about boundaries and assertiveness. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, 
it's like, and that like, if people knew that boundaries helped relationships right, and weren't like just walls, like boundaries and walls are two very different things. But yeah, I mean, the, if we just had more psychoeducation in the world, you know, we'd be unstoppable, but alas. So I, I was going through this extreme loss. I, and really my first, my first, uh, inkling maybe that I thought I could do something in more of a clinical sense, um, with this was about only about three months after he died, when I started a chapter of, um, of grasp, which is grief recovery after a substance passing, um, which is a, a national organization of like support groups. And, and there wasn't any support group in where I was living, which is kind of crazy um, in Baltimore, but here we were. And I was in uh, Howard County in Columbia, Maryland, where I grew up. I moved back home for a while after that time. And the therapist I was working with actually introduced me to uh, like the organization and because we were both looking for something because I wanted to do some group work. And through becoming a facilitator and a group member, which is also kind of a, an interesting role, I saw that like I could make a difference and that I, I enjoyed and I found purpose in this because I was, I mean, especially working with that therapist who was amazing, but I, I was like, oh my God, how could you do this? How could you be a grief therapist? Like, ugh, so much work, what a bummer. And somehow finding this, true purpose in it. And like, even when I wasn't doing that work, always coming back to it somehow, like when I was doing the case management with, with the unhoused mentally ill population, like always coming back to some type of like therapeutic clinical work, um, around trauma, around grief. Um, so I, I felt like it was just kind of like in my blood at that point. And, and so much of who I am personally shows up professionally for me. Um, and so much of who I am professionally is who I am personally. So it's not very separate for me in a, and I think a really beautiful way and not so much a poor boundary way. <laughs> yeah. So the fact of the matter is that loss can be traumatic and devastating. What are your thoughts about the relationship between grief and loss and trauma? So as far as your brain, grief and loss is a trauma. And when we experience a significant loss, I mean, our, our, our brains react in, in very similar ways than when we experience a significant trauma. And, and I don't think you can really be a grief therapist without being trauma-informed. I personally think no matter what kind of therapist you are, you should be trauma-informed, but um, like, totally. um, but coming from that, like perspective, like, like knowing trauma work, knowing trauma modalities because it's traumatic and similar to other traumas. If we don't identify it, if we don't focus on it, we won't heal from it. And it also doesn't go away. So facing it is, I mean, a, a huge 
a huge part of, of, I think the work that, that we do in therapy and like, and that can be like baby, baby steps, or I mean, just showing up in, in session. I mean, you know, as I said, like my, my ideal client like shows up for themselves and maybe it's really like the only way they can show up for, for themselves is logging into the session and that's it. But that shows they made a choice to like be in this space that they know is for them, which when someone is traumatized or someone is experiencing intense grief, like that is a huge and very, very difficult step. Um, so I think there are many, many parallels and similarly to trauma, I don't think you can really be a true trauma therapist without doing grief work. So I think they're hand in hand. Totally agree. But hundred percent. In your yeah. TED talk, you say that grief is a cocktail of fear, uncertainty, and loneliness. Uh, grief seems to be such a personal journey. Uh, no one can experience your grief with you, which seems to compound the loneliness. How do you treat someone dealing with grief while acknowledging that while you can hold space for the loneliness, there's really no way for them to escape it? So I think there's like this assumption or hope that therapy will provide someone with the way to stop the hurt um, or get over the loss. And it, it doesn't. I wish I, you know, I, I often say, I wish I had that magic pill. I wish I had that magic thing to say that would take away all this pain, take away all this hurt, but I don't because it doesn't exist. So like, I think that there are some assumptions that can be made about grief that we might you know, sometimes feel for a day. We might feel for years, but like we generally will feel this, um, will feel this loneliness at least at some small part of the grief journey, if not for a lot of the grief journey. And, you know, what I was talking about before, like it's, it's a weird paradox of, of like being so lonely and feeling like we have this specialness um, to our experience um, where we don't really want people to understand because if they do, then we might think that then uh, it wouldn't be worthy or we wouldn't be worthy of, of of the impact that we feel. So then it leads us into this cyclical like spiral of, you know, actually isolating ourselves from opportunities to find connection. So if we feel like there's like there's not room for us and that we're a burden because we're experiencing grief, then we will continue to hide it. And really hide from our own grief, which doesn't stop it. It really just, you know, makes it louder and louder and louder until it comes out one day and it's not in our control at all. And I think therapy can be a space that we can either like let it come out a little bit, we can let it come out a lot, but an identified safe space for, for it to like, for it to come out and, and not feel so scared about it and know that if we let it out, it doesn't solve everything, but it is part of the process that, you know, needs to happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You also say that we can learn resilience by learning to connect with and allowing ourselves to experience our grief, that we should think about the future. And in grief, we are stuck in the present and the past. 
But in the peak of our grief, the future feels like such a bleak place, devoid of, you know, exactly what we're feeling the grief about what we've lost. And it's not really a place we want to be. How do you find hope in a future that isn't somewhere you want to be? How do you guide your client in finding their sense of purpose? So uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, who's like one of the leading people in trauma work, he talks about the importance of imagination and that when people are severely traumatized, we lack this ability to imagine a better life, a healed life. And similarly to grief, like when our entire world is coming down, it wouldn't make sense to innately be, you know what, I'll get over this. Like, because there's, it feels like there's no getting over and we can't imagine anything else than what is impactful right now. Like, like I, I sometimes think about it in the sense of a, um, of like stimulation. If we're overstimulated, then we feel the impact of that. We can't, we, we feel generally outside our window of tolerance. So we need to get back to our window of tolerance and we need to, to manage that stimulation. So we think of, you know, well, when I get home, I, I know I can go to sleep and it will be, you know, I'll finally, you know, get to rest my body. Um, or I'm so freezing right now, but when I get home, I, I have so many blankets I can get under. Like we can imagine ourselves in these situations, which can, again, cyclically, like help us get back into, um, even like the middle of our window of tolerance and not so much like just barely in. So with grief and loss, it's very, very hard to imagine the future. However, if we can't imagine the future and we can't imagine ourselves in a different spot than where we're at, we won't be able to get there. So I try to help my clients like get to a more, um, like through curiosity and, and through, um, like finding this resilience that maybe has been hiding. Maybe we didn't even know existed. We can think about what could tomorrow look like? Can you imagine yourself in different clothes than you're in right now? Could you imagine? I mean, like starting very, very small, but we feel this, this, heavy challenge because it's the heaviness of the grief. And we feel, I mean, like, like frozen, which again, could be the freeze response again, relating its trauma. So, um, just helping them know that like the future is not going to look like today. And we, the reality is that we don't know what it will look like, but if it was anything other than what it looks like today, what could it look like? And just like maintaining that curiosity, I think is the the key. Okay. All right. Um, what message would you like to send to anybody out there who may be listening that is currently struggling with some grief? So I would say that uh, you are allowed to make a big deal out of things that you care about. You're allowed to feel big feelings. Again, not something that is often validated that guilt 
is a part of grief and guilt actually has a purpose, which is there's three really main reasons why we have guilt. One is that we actually did something wrong. One is that we feel like we did something wrong. And one is that it creates order. And I think in grief, most often it's that third one where if we feel guilt for something, if we have self-blame, then it says, it gives a reason to something that doesn't have an answer um, because it's very, very hard to tolerate knowing that things happen that are outside of our control, that freak accidents happen. So knowing that like the guilt that you're probably feeling is, is normal and will go away with, with the right work and that hiding from, from your grief won't change it or make it go away. And that grief is a a weird paradox of, you know, we have to feel bad in order to feel better. Good message. I love it. So uh, going back to you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Um, I've, I have a lot of experience. About half my clients, I would say right now, um, are people that identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. I have I, I am and have in the past worked with a handful of trans clients um, that I feel like is is work that is not talked about enough. The importance of the work um, and the importance of the knowledge around around holding space for people that um, could possibly even be thinking of that identity for themselves. Um, because just because we're not currently working with someone that is trans doesn't mean that we won't ever, um, or that even one of our current clients like couldn't identify that in the future. So, or that, or that one of your current clients is trans and you don't know it. Um, yeah, I've, I've worked with trans people before who have withheld their gender from their therapist for fear that they would focus on that when that was not the focus of therapy in any way, shape, or form. So. Um, that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if there was, you know, more willingness and acceptance, even in the therapeutic community, again, like the changes that we would see and, and, and the, the growth that we would see in, and not only therapists, but our clients and in the space itself, I, I try my absolute hardest to work from a, um, perspective that is inclusive and is anti-racist and has a, like an open door policy, I call it like quote, open door policy of if something is bothering you, this is a safe space to bring it up. And by bothering you in the therapy space, um, or if I said something I feel you feel like I shouldn't have, or any type of discomfort um, within our relationship, having and building a good rapport um, with people who might be different than I am in, in many ways, not feeling unsafe to bring that up. 
Um, and I think that that comes with practice to create that space for someone. Sure, for sure. Um, thanks for bringing that up. I, I totally agree, but that's just me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, what could a new client expect from you in an initial session? And what about on an ongoing basis? Just because I, I am changing this uh, this year, um, I've, I've decided to make a change to it because the first session for me, um, I know a lot of people do like an intake session. Mm -hmm. I never really saw my practice doing like an intake session before. Um, it was more so just like a, I try to keep things pretty, chill. So it's like a casual type of intake, I guess. Um, you know, I, I might ask them, so like, what, what brings you to therapy now? So not only what brings you to therapy, but why now? And, um, and I might have asked that, you know, on the consultation call, if they don't really know how to answer that, or if they feel uncomfortable, then I have, you know, a set of intake like questions that I can ask them in that first session. And it's really just building rapport. It's, you know, them getting to know me and my style and the space that I potentially can provide for them and them getting to know, them getting to know sometimes what therapy is. Sometimes people haven't been to therapy. So it's, it's like sometimes psychoeducation on like, this is the space and this is what it will look like. And then me getting to know them and not only the foundation. What, Laying the foundation, yeah, not only like what we're going to do in this um, space um, and why they're here, but also just who they are as a person, what makes them them. Um, and then ongoing, kind of similarly, like rapport is always being built, but I, I generally like to have an expectation, um, again, stating this in the consultation call, like if I'm working, you're working. And I'm going to work harder than you. And exactly. And I'm not working harder than you. Like you learn that in grad school and you keep it with you. So um, if I feel like I'm working harder than you, I will let you know. Um, I'm, I, I am very transparent. Um, and I'm also someone that will call you on your shit. And that doesn't change over the sessions. Um, so I, I have, uh, they know what to expect. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I'm, I I always tell my clients in the initial session, like, I'm going to call you on your shit. Like, you know, it doesn't help you to keep doing the things that you've always done that end up with the same results that you've always gotten. You know, it's just, yeah. let's break that cycle. Yeah. Um, and, you know, gentle, you do it in a gentle, you know, compassionate way. You don't have to be a dick about it. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, it's, I think it's important to do to challenge people. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you determine your client's treatment plan goals? And how will I know that I'm done with therapy? Okay, so this is a fun question because I think treatment plans are so dumb. <laughs> I hate them. And if I never made another one for the rest of my life, I think every client that I've ever worked with will be fine. However, it's part of my ethics and it's part of working with insurance and it's a pain in the ass because. I feel like sometimes treatment plans forget that they're for human beings and that human beings are dynamic. And especially when you're doing grief and trauma work, there are going to be days where that's what we're working on. And that's why we've come to therapy today. And that's what we're doing. And that's what it says in the treatment plan. And then 
something else happened. Then, you know, someone gets uh, fired, mm. which we can say, sure, it's another loss. But if the loss that we were working on was, you know, the loss of a person's mother five years ago, the treatment will look very different than a loss for a job. Also, let's say, you know, there's primarily like an eating disorder diagnosis and we're doing, you know, that work. And then all of a sudden someone's mother dies. We're not just going to be like, ah, you know, it's not in the treatment plan. So we're just going to have to <laughs> like put this on the shelf. And uh, once we're done with this issue, then we'll move on to the next issue. Like that's yeah. not how human beings work. Yeah. And it doesn't provide flexibility because it, we also can't totally change the treatment plan because we still need to do the eating disorder work, you know? So it's, it's challenging. Um, I almost all of the clients that I have that I'm working with right now, um, I've worked with for close to a year, if not more, there are a few clients that are, you know, I would say I think I have one client under six months, but other than that, like they're all kind of longer term. And I think a lot of people use therapy as just, you know, even if nothing is particularly bothersome, um, it's, you know, a place that they, that's theirs that they can, you know, decompress and they can process, um, every week. So, even if we kind of complete the treatment plan or we complete the, the treatment they originally came for, not like there's always something more, but there's so many more ways to use a therapeutic space. I like to leave termination, not totally up to the client, but model me trusting the client, modeling that they can trust themselves to make decisions and especially about their treatment and that they are part of that treatment team. Now, if I feel like there's some like dependency, like I, I will call that out and remain curious about that. Like, like, what do you think is keeping you here? And, and, um, you know, maybe encourage, let's do every other week, let's do once a month. And generally what tends to happen is that people like find the insight, like, you know, I've actually been pretty okay. You know, maybe, maybe I can go down to once a month or maybe I just call you when, when I need a session. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, sounds great. So, um, I think you'll know you're done with therapy when you want to be done with therapy. Like it's, I mean, that, maybe that's like a cop-out answer, but I, I do, I do really believe in encouraging clients to trust themselves. Okay. And clients being their own expert. Yes. Yeah. 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 We're, we're seeing, we see eye to eye on a lot of things here. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you define holding space for someone? I think it is, I think it's all about mindfulness where um, it's a, a, a emotional, holding, holding space involves your body, involves your emotions, involves you know, nonverbal cues, sometimes verbal cues, but it is, you know, it's, it's a look, it's not being afraid of silence. It's not, um, it's, you know, acknowledging, acknowledging the rapport that 
has been and continues to be built and maintained through every session and, and using that as a tool um, and trusting that as a tool where if there's silence, there's probably processing happening and it's not just nothing. And I think a therapist that is good at holding space will realize that um, and not be afraid of that and not be afraid of the silence. But it, it, there's a feeling that I think the client will get um, because, you know, if, if we've been in therapy, you know, like, like we know that feeling, like we feel heard when we're not saying anything that's holding space. Good answer. I like it. What do you do to take care of yourself? And is there one thing after a particularly hard day that you just got to be sure to do? Um, I, I realized after difficult days, I am talking to one of my siblings more. So I think, um, and sometimes I talk about the session. Sometimes I talk about nothing to do with the session. Um, but so connecting with people I love, um, I have different shows that I like to watch and know like, okay, am I in a space to watch this or am I in a space to watch that? You know, do I need some Ted Lasso or do I need some law and order SBU? Like it's, <laughs> it's, you know, uh, being mindful of that. I really love cooking. Um, I like exercising, you know, sitting all day. Like I need some joyful movement in my life. Um, as I said, you know, being so close to the, the lake, I like, being able to just get outside and walk and get fresh air. Um, I think after a particularly hard session, I I've written after that. Um, I, one thing I I did the other day, which I've never done before actually, um, is I went outside on my patio and turned on, I have like some Christmas lights. That's like, I turned on those and I put on some, like quiet music and I, um, uh, colored in my coloring book, which I have, and I've only used nice. it a couple of times, but it was just so, it was like a really beautiful night. Um, and it was, it was really great. Cause I noticed that a lot of things I do for self care might involve some type of like stimulation or some type of uh, screen. So it was nice. I mean, I guess I had music, um, but it was nice to use a different part of my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, that sounds that sounds lovely. Um, okay, next question: How would you define happiness? So I uh, I tried to really think about this before, um, but I think happiness is finding gratitude and hard situations. Um, I have a mantra, um, that I, I have, I don't know when I started kind of telling this to myself, but, um, it's, I'm happy because I'm grateful and I'm grateful because I'm happy. Um, and that just being a cycle that I, I truly, truly feel and using that as, as even a tool when, if I'm having a really hard day, if I'm feeling really angry, trying my best to just identify one thing I'm grateful for. And it starts like a train of that. And, and it changed it for me, it changes my mood. Um, so I know that those two things like go hand in hand together for, for myself. 
but I also, you know, I think happiness is also feeling like you're living out your values and that you accept contentness. Um, cause I think sometimes contentness gets like a bad name, like never be content. Um, but to be completely complacent. Exactly. Exactly. And contentness is underrated. <laughs> like it feels good, especially after like, you know, a hard day. Um, yeah. but I think that's what happiness is. Good definition. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and your practice? Um, I have a, um, a book coming out recently. I forgot to ask um, about the book. Yes. Tell us about the book. And, uh, so I, uh, so the book is called adding the E, um, which a lot of people ask about the title, but I can't tell you why it's the title until you read it. Cause then you'll know. Um, but <laughs> it's, um, it's adding the E perspectives of grief through recounts, letters and poetry. Um, I talk about, in the first half, I talk about um, my experience um, losing my partner, um, my experience with my partner, um, and that's told through a narrative and through um, uh, letters I, I wrote to him after his death and uh, poetry written between 2013 and 2021. Um, and the second half of the book uh, is more clinical. Um, it talks about uh, some psychoeducation. Um, I, I share some, some client stories um, and I share research that I um, have done over the last couple of years, um, qualitative research about other people's experiences of grief um, and showing some commonalities and, and Hopefully people can get some education and therefore feel not as alone and have a bit more self-compassion. So I'm really, really proud of it. I'm really excited. Um, and it's available February 8th. Wait, I, I'm super excited to check it out. Will it be on Amazon or um, where it can will people be. find it? Um, so uh, right now it's available for pre-order through my publisher's website. Um, and if you go on my website, there's a, a link to it. There's a whole page about the book. Um, so you can find it there. Um, but it will be on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, all those, you know, retailers, um, and yeah. um, internationally as well. So I'm excited that people will be Super. hopefully be reading it in Spain. So <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. We learned something new today and hope you did too. Stay tuned to our episode next week featuring Megan Van Meter, licensed professional counselor will be speaking about her practice in an area of specialty, the role of creativity in combating burnout for helping professionals. Next Quest podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. 
For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.